0: Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by John Dorney, my co-presenter from the IrishStory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash theirishhistoryshow. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it, and we are so grateful for the support we get from you, the listeners. On this episode, my co-presenter John Dorney discussed the history of Ukraine and its parallels with Ireland with Ukrainian scholar Nadia Dobrianska.
1: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. It's me, John Dorney, and I'm joined by a very interesting guest today, Nadia Dobrianska. Nadia has a number of strings to her bow, among them she's a, a scholar of Irish history, speaker of the Irish language to a much better extent than your host today. And she's also Ukrainian and she's resident in Ireland currently for the second time. We'll get into why. But first of all, Nadia, thanks very much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me. Really delighted to talk to you.
1: And less people don't believe me, tough fault to Nadia. The
2: show.
1: Okay, so Nadia, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in Irish culture and Irish history?
2: Right, so I have a degree in Irish studies from Queen's University Belfast. I graduated in 2020. I was mostly studying Irish history and politics. And I've had this long-standing interest in Irish culture since I think I was a teen. I was I'm a victim of Irish soft power. I, I was introduced to Irish traditional music by a tutor of English from the from the north of England. And when I heard altans like Mered Númeni singing in Irish, I was completely taken and wanted to learn Irish. Yeah, I, I was hoping to do to do law degree in in Dublin after my bachelor's degree in Ukraine but because of the financial crisis of 2008-2009 we couldn't afford it so kind of put off all my plans to do Irish studies but then 10 years afterwards after lawyering in politics in Ukraine policy and human rights I had to break down and decided to do something for myself and just went and won a scholarship to do Irish studies and here I am
1: And so your original interest was actually in Irish music and then the Irish language, I think.
2: Yes. So, yeah, I'm a musician myself. I've been playing piano since I was a kid, like from early days. And I was firstly interested in Irish music and along with that literature and poetry and Irish dancing and everything you could get. And at the time in, in 2005, 2006, we had lots of schools of Irish dancing. The river dance were roaring around the world. So that was the story back then. But then later on, as I grew more interested in politics myself, I got more interested in Irish politics too. And I had this long-standing interest in history overall. I was admitted to the School of History and the School of Law, but I opted for the School of Law for the sake of subsistence in Ukraine. When I came to Belfast to do Irish studies, I very. Early on, saw that history is the subject that I'm most driven to, and I really delved into it very deeply and really happy about that.
1: And tell us something about your studies of Irish history. What areas did you look into?
2: I'm mostly interested in 20th century Irish history and, and political history, and my master's subject was on the Troubles, the Northern Troubles, during the 1920s, during Partition. And I wrote my master's thesis about the politics of the Weaver Street bombing.
1: And the Weaver Street bombing, for people who are not aware, was an atrocity in Belfast in 1922.
2: Yeah, so it's known to be a bombing that killed six children. But in fact, four children were killed, four teenage girls in North Belfast and two women who died later of their wounds. Well, it was a political, very politically significant bombing that was discussed in Westminster Parliament. There was a lot of votibiotery going on uh, between Michael Collings and Winston Churchill and James Craig. Later, it became the epitome of Catholic suffering for the sake of the, of the nationalist propaganda. And it heard really strong reverberations later on. But sadly, it's been forgotten for a long while and this year this year there there was a centenary of the bombing on the 13th of February and I was delighted to see that more people were searching for information about it there were more publications about it coming out so thankfully that memory is catching up.
1: Yeah I mean the northern aspect of the Irish revolution is something one of the real areas I think where progress has been made in, in recent years in terms of Uh, reopening it because you know it was neglected for such a long time.
2: Yeah I mean I'm really sad that the the biggest issue discussed in the historiography is whether it was a pogrom or not coming from the place that coined the term pogrom I'm a bit sad that this is the only thing that is kind of worth discussing while I think that there's so much more like why would these people even call the uh, murder of Catholics pogrom. And why would the other side d- deny it and yeah there's a lot in in that
1: yeah I mean we're going to be speaking mostly about Ukraine today but we must get you back to talk about that you know on, on future occasions before we move on I talk more about you know Ukraine and parallels between Ireland and Ukraine, which is what I want to really get into today is your interest in the Irish language like how difficult was it for a Ukrainian to learn Irish it
2: was fine <laughs>
1: I should tell you that Nadia is very down on people who don't learn Irish or can't be bothered to learn Irish.
2: Well, no, I mean, as a Ukrainian, I speak, I think I'm more or less fluent in four languages. And I used to study three more. And growing up in Ukraine, you you're, are kind of exposed to Ukrainian and Russian regardless of which language is your native. Like I'm, I'm a monolingual native Ukrainian speaker and I learned Russian just from the telly and from the streets and from other people. But it's, it's only natural for people to know a few languages. So when I see Irish people giving out that Irish is so hard, I'm more prone to attribute that to them being English speakers that they don't need to learn other languages to get on in the world rather than sheer complexity of Irish. But I do agree that the word order and spelling were a bit hard to get used to. But now that I'm used to them, I've, I've had these periods now and again when, when I'd start writing English with, with the Irish spelling rules like quell, quell, lah, and I was like, no, this is wrong. I should stop that. But I.
1: You mentioned originally learning Irish from a grammar book, I think, in Kiev or something like that.
2: Yeah, this was so strange. Like 10 years ago, before that, I tried, when I was 19, I tried to learn Irish from a textbook in Russian. They do teach uh, Irish at the Moscow University, so I can't get hold of that book anymore. But the problem was with this textbook that has enormous charts of spelling and pronunciation rules that just, to me, as an Irish speaker now just don't make sense but back in the day I thought I was just stupid their Irish was so hard and I was just not able to learn it yeah in 2018 I downloaded Duolingo and tried to learn Irish there and it turned out that Irish is quite easy unless well once you get used to the word order and spelling that's it
1: now you know we got to talk about how you ended up living in Ireland for the second time so you know it's I realize it's, it's a difficult time for you, but can you just say briefly how you ended up in Ireland, you know, for the second time?
2: Yeah, so as you probably know, on 24th of February, Russia started a new invasion in Ukraine, and I'm from Kiev myself, and the the first day when I read that the war was declared at 5 a.m. when it was declared, and I I just rang my parents, rang my brother, packed my stuff and heard the bombings in Kiev, and just, we fled. That day and the week after staying in the countryside with my family, I decided that we go to Ireland because by that time Ireland waived visa restrictions for Ukrainians. And to me, knowing that nowhere in Ukraine is safe because Russia's fighter jets and long-range ballistic missiles... I just I couldn't bear knowing that my elderly parents would be bombed because they're just not quick enough to hide in bomb shelters so I was definitely considering leaving Ukraine becoming refugees and going to Ireland was only a natural choice because I had well my most connections my most friends were in Northern Ireland but I thought that going to Ireland would be definitely easier for me, knowing the culture and sort of having this connection and it worked out really well. So we are settled in Cork, in rural Cork for now, so hopefully moving to Cork city shortly. And yeah, so I'm here with my parents and my cousin and her four month old son. And I'm going to go back to Poland in, in a few days to pick up my brother's cat, who is a weak refugee cat, because my brother is in territorial defense.
1: And, you know, we're we're happy to have you, Nadia, here, here in Ireland. So I want to chat about Ukraine and its history and not so much, you know, in regard to a polemical way or in regard to necessarily explaining what's happening now. But I think Irish people in general don't know that much about Ukraine. So I want to chat about, you know, the history of Ukraine and any parallels with Ireland so that people will have kind of a mental picture, you know, of, of Ukraine and, and its history. So my first question, Nadia, is the name Ukraine. Where does it come from and, and what does it mean?
2: So it's a bit complicated. The word Ukraine has a root Krai in Ukrainian, which has different meanings. And linguistically speaking, the most plausible theory is that Krai in, in Ukraine means a certain territory, which, is, which was reserved to um, old Ukrainian tribes, like Slavic tribes that made Ukraine later. It basically means country, as in tier in irish as in land connected to the people it also has a different meaning cry means edge and there are all, there is always this tension between russia and russian-speaking saying that oh, ukraine means Ukraine, as in uh, the outskirts and this is used as a pretext to declare that ukraine is not a thing and ukraine doesn't deserve to exist as a nation because they're just an outskirt to russia but linguistically speaking, looking at the history of Ukrainian language, Ukraine means the country and became first used as the name of Ukrainian nation probably only in mid-19th century. It, uh, it was used maybe, uh, around 15th, 16th century to describe the Cossack state. So eventually it became the name of the nation, but the, the roots remained the same.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going to get on to the Cossacks and so on. But, you know, one thing to note, though, I mean, is this is not necessarily that unusual. Like, for example, in the Basque country, they invented a name for the Basque country again in the 19th century. You know, before that, they just talked about the place where the Basque language was spoken. So, you know, Ireland has the good luck to be an island. So you have to have some name for it, I suppose. But my other question, though, was what other names have Ukrainians gone by? Because Ukrainians have actually been around a long time. They just necessarily haven't been called Ukrainians. Like in the English language, they used to be called, I believe, Ruthenians. Can you talk about some of the other names for Ukrainians over the, the centuries?
2: Yeah, well, Ruthenians were pretty much the the other word that was used for Ukrainians. It was connected to the Duchy of Kiev, Kiev in Ukrainian, Kiev and as You would say that in English, the, the medieval state that existed that was centered in Kiev, and later on, when Kiev and Rus was in, in decay, and eventually it was taken over by the uh, Great Dutch of Lithuania and Poland and late and other states. Of, it's it kind of persisted well into the nineteenth century as the as the word for Ukrainians. You can see it in the chronicles since medieval ages, and well into the nineteenth century when Ukrainians took over. The the word Ukrainians took over. But we also have this. It was used in the uh, interwar Poland in, uh, that held. Uh, Western Ukraine, like Alicia and Volynia, to kind of signify that Ruthenians are different from Ukrainians. That was a very interesting political move. And also in modern Ukraine, there's this group in Transcarpathia and well, in Western Ukraine who call them themselves Ruthenians and claiming that they are a bit of a different ethnic group. And this is a very interesting debate, which is not that. In- Strong given the war, but there is the debate about that too. So the, the word is no longer used to, to signify all Ukrainians in history. And well, the other term that you would hear about Ukraine is the little Russia, well, literally translated from Smaller Russia. And this is the, the term that was used by Catherine II, the Empress of the Russian Empire. The Ukrainian lands within the Russian Empire were named officially as. Malorossia, and you would later see it being used administratively and politically to refer to Ukrainians, and we had this kind of contest that even now we're saying that if there is a person who is, doesn't, who is prone to, well, sympathetic to Russia politically, they sometimes you can hear them called Maloross in mm-hmm. this way.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's obvious Irish equivalents for that that I won't go into, but, you know, Today, a Ukrainian is a citizen of of Ukraine, Uh, and I think it's important also to emphasize that, you know, Ukraine is a state that voted for independence in 1991 and that has been invaded now. But, you know, we'll get onto all of that. But my question, though, is historically, how has a Ukrainian been defined? Is it by language? Is it by, you know, like religion, like it was in Ireland? Or uh, what were the traditional kind of identifiers of a Ukrainian?
2: Probably speak about this identification as Ukrainian, only probably since... Early modern times, at least. And Ukrainians were Greek Orthodox. And up, I would say that since the Ukrainian territories uh, were conquered by the Great Duchy of Lithuania and the Polish Kingdom, this became identification of Ukrainians became an important issue for them. Within this Polish Lithuanian Union, Ukrainians were the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, while Poles were. Lithuanians were Catholic and so back in the day this certain sectarian identification was was important and one of the reasons well one of the supposedly reasons why the Cossacks were so important for Ukraine because they were defending the orthodox faith that was the the trope but then when uh, Ukraine willingly joined the union with Russian religion stopped being an issue and I would say that probably the language became more of an identifier. But you would really ha- it, it's really hard to say that, well, as as just as in Northern Ireland, like religion is probably a predictor of identity, but political identity, but not probably not in all cases. So in Ukraine these days, and well, since the Soviet Union and in these days, there are many Russian speakers in Ukraine who identify as Ukrainian and Ukrainians, Ukrainian speaking, who might not be extremely identifying with Ukraine, maybe not as many of them. Well, since 2014, when the Russian, well, the first stage of Russian invasion began, Ukraine developed this rather broad political identity that became inclusive for. People of all all faiths and of all languages, well, provided that they want to be part of this, to be defined as Ukrainian. And it was a big deal in 2014 when Russian-speaking volunteers went to fight for the Ukrainian army. And there was a certain degree of tension that, oh, you speak Russian, how come you think you're Ukrainian? But... This is yeah, this this is the fact now, and I'm really proud about this inclusive Ukrainian identity that we're seeing now. Because up until then, maybe you would rather hear certain certain degree of ethnic nationalism being more well spoken about. You would probably it wouldn't be as prevalent, but it was discussed that oh, you're Ukrainian because you speak Ukrainian, you were born in Ukraine, and these days there are proud Ukrainians who are of Georgian uh, origin and ethnically Russian and Jewish Ukrainians who are considered as Ukrainians.
1: And Greeks even, I believe, people of Greek heritage. Of
2: course. Yeah, so the the Azov Greeks have been living in in the Azov region for a long while, since at least uh, end of 18th century into 19th century, when Catherine II invited colonization of Southeast Ukraine. It's a long story why it became possible, but we'll hopefully get into that.
1: Yeah, let's, I'm going to take you right back, though, right back into the early Middle Ages and to a kingdom that's known in English anyway as Kievan Rus, which is claimed as the mother or father, I suppose, of both Ukraine and Russia. Can you tell me what Kievan Rus was and, you know, what it means?
2: So The territory of modern Ukraine back then was populated by the Slavic tribes, like East, Eastern Slavic tribes. And they sort of spoke what Ukrainian linguists consider as proslovianskomova, as in Proto-Slavic language, which, well, according to the linguists, I would, politically there are different theories about what, about that language, but they, uh, around 8th, 9th century, they somehow ended up being ruled by the Vikings, by the Rurik dynasty. And, well, there's this beautiful legend that supposedly Slavic tribes invited them to come and rule over us. That's the legend. But you would probably think that they were conquered. And one of the small things is that, you, that Ukraine shares with Ireland in this respect is the borrowings from Old Norse. Because that was the only period in time when Ukraine was directly borrowing words from Old Norse. And you could see that the word for cod in Irish, torsk, trosk. And Triska in Ukrainian have the same roots. And this is not because Ukrainians had any dealings with the Irish back then, but that's because of the Vikings. So eventually the Vikings really assimilated and as it always happened. And so Ukrainian prominent dukes of Kiev, well, the Doshi of Kiev became sort of a cultural center back in the day with, with vibrant architecture and strong connections with continental Europe. And if I can um, just
1: jump in for a second, who was Prince Vladimir or Vladimir?
2: Well, there were two of them. One of them, Volodymyr Veliki, the Vladimir the Great, who supposedly baptized Ukraine.
1: He was the Saint Patrick of Ukraine, almost except he was also a king.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, well, this is the, the the political legend that he was the one who baptized Ukraine with the sword and the glory of taking, making Christianity the official religion but well, there's evidence of uh, previous dukes adopting Christianity too so this is the story that is still well it's cherished now but historically it's not exactly accurate and you wouldn't think that Ukraine would be christened in a day there was lots of stories about the pagans being prosecuted by him but yeah he was the one who is the most remembered of the dukes well there's also the duchess Olga who was clearly of Viking ancestry. She's very famous in Ukraine for the revenge that she took on the tribe of Drevljane, who weren't happy to pay rates to her husband, Duke Igor, and they murdered him. Her revenge on, their, on them is very famous, that supposedly she brought them coal with the birds who set fire their, their uh, Drevljans homes and fire and supposedly she burned the ambassadors of Drevljansk in the sauna and this is this image of Duchess Olga is very strong among Ukrainians as in saying well we have strong women too and this is what happens when you're messing with us.
1: Kievan Rus from my reading was you know prosperous medieval state and it's in touch with the the Byzantine Empire so you know what's left of the Eastern Roman Empire and so on Um, and that's where the Orthodox Christianity comes from. Uh, what brought that period to an end? First of all,
2: one of the reasons was that there was a lot of infighting among the heirs, of, among the the dukes, and which was because in, in in medieval Europe, and the other reason was the Mongol Tatar invasion in thirteenth century.
1: So this is Genghis Khan or his descendants.
2: Yes, and event so the Kievan Rus was conquered by the Mongol Tatars, the center of Ukrainian. The medieval state moved to the west, to the kingdom, uh, to the duchy of Galicia and Wallen. And the Duke Danilo was even crowned by the Pope to become the king Danilo, as he was really asking the rest of Europe to join in uh, to launch a crusade against the Mongols, so to liberate Ukrainian territories. But they sent their Deep concern, and he got his crown, but nothing ever happened.
1: So, you know, after the downfall of Kievan Rus, a state was set up to the east around what's now Moscow, which is, you know, the initially called Muscovy, I think. Is that right?
2: So these territories, the Slavic territories, had these big different duties, and Moscow was, I'm not sure when Moscow was founded, but it didn't mean that the center moved. It was rather different duties came into the Mongol power and some, not all of them did.
1: You know, the, the reason I bring it up is that people still debate about this today. I mean, even the president of Russia brought this up at various times, you know, saying how, you know, Kievan Rus' is the ancestor of Russia and not Ukraine and so on. So, I mean, I suppose the question for us today is what significance does Kievan Rus' have in terms of, you know, popular memory and national memory in Ukraine?
2: Ukraine Kiev and Rus is literally the one of the states that existed in the Ukrainian territories and Ukrainian language and literally living with the churches and certain buildings that were built back then so this is the significant part of Ukrainian history and Ukraine Ukraine present day so the the, the dukes and uh, of Kiev and Rus are part of the popular memory if when there was competition, well, there was the show who the greatest Ukrainians are in King, and Duke Volodymyr was one of the leading ones even in 2000s among the Ukrainian public watching telly. So, yeah, this, this is a very strong memory and cultural heritage of the churches and monasteries that were built back then. They're undeniably a part of Ukrainian culture, modern Ukrainian cultural heritage and references. Yeah, it's a long story and probably not for our talk today why russia cannot live without the heritage of kiev and Rus uh, being as an independent state but this is their interpretation of history and i don't think i personally don't think that we need to find well we don't we have to own all the territories that we ever had like you, ukrainian borders have been changing throughout history for so many times yeah i think it's a very imperialist thing to think that if we once owned certain territory, we have to have it on our...
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, once upon a time, you know, the last High King of Ireland, Rory O'Kahur, you know, pledged allegiance and subservience to the King of England, you know, back in the 12th century. But so what, you know, is the the question. Moving on, though, you know, you've alluded to this, and this is probably the most unfamiliar period, I think, to Irish listeners. But for a long time, a lot of what's now Ukraine was ruled by Poland and Lithuania. Can you try to explain that?
2: First of all, after the Mongol-Tatar state fell in decay, the other well other rulers in europe were taking advantage of that so the, the duchy of lithuania was very expansionist back in 13th 14th century and well the polish kingdom as well but the duchy of lithuania conquered most of modern ukrainian territories back in 13th 14th century and they gradually developed the, this union between lithuania and poland that resulted in this Rzeczpospolita Polska as the, was is the, the polish name which included Ukrainian territories, Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine. And Ukrainians were the third big nation in this union, but they never had the status because this is the union developed from the crown, from the dynastical unions between the Polish kings and queens and dukes of. Lithuania and Ukrainians were there as their subjects to put it this way so Ukraine Ukrainian nobility didn't have the same privileges as the Polish and Lithuanian nobility and yeah so there this was the period when sectarianism was the last last time significant for Ukraine and during the Reformation, there was this big effort by the Polish, well, the, by the Polish rulers to bring end to the Orthodoxy. Among Ukrainians, they created this breast union, but as they call Hoda, in 1596, when they tried to merge the Greek Orthodox Church in Ukraine with the Roman Catholic Church. It worked. So some people joined this church. So there's quite significant numbers in modern Ukraine of people who are Greek Orthodox, but they belong to the, ultimately to the Catholic Church. But it didn't end Orthodoxy in Ukraine. And this, the polemics in Ukrainian, among Ukrainian scholars back then and politicians, really contributed to development of Ukrainian literary language. They were giving out about the Union or giving out, well, to those who give it, were giving out about it. So it was a very interesting period.
1: You know, forgive me for just taking out, you know, the highlights of, of a thousand years of Ukrainian history, Nadia, but the Cossacks are a very important part of, of this period of Ukrainian history. And even today, I think of, of Ukrainian kind of historical memory. Uh, who were the Cossacks uh, and why were they important in this period?
2: so nobody really knows where they how they came into being there are so many theories behind it but basically this was the warrior social group in ukraine that uh, consisted well the most standard way to describe them were as the free men who were out of serfdom and they were living on the well yeah living f- freely from the serfdom that was imposed by the the state on ukrainian farmers back then And they were known for their raids of the Crimean Khanate, and they were always warring with the Turks, and they became the symbols of freedom and. love for the freedom in the 19th century Ukraine and, and onwards as a symbol of Ukrainian statehood. Mm. But in fairness, looking back, well, as a bit of doing a bit of a revisionist history. They were basically a class that was not accommodated for in the in the uh, retrospective. Rich- followed the state. There were two groups of Cossacks. One were the Zaporizhskaya sich the army that lived in central Dnepro, Ukraine. The others were the registry Cossacks who were on the payroll of King. And there was quite a significant strife of the Cossacks to become recognized by the state. And there were Cossack uprisings in the early 17th century to increase the number of Cossacks on the state registry. And ultimately, the uprising of Bohdan Khmelnytsky, which, while Ireland was ravaged by Cromwell, about the same time the Ukrainian Cossacks were fighting for independence from Poland. They, they wanted recognition of their privileges on the same scale as the Polish and Lithuanian nobility, and, and they wouldn't get this, so they fought for this independence.
1: To put kind of a marker for... Irish listeners, is there some comparison between, say, the rebellion of this man whose name I find hard to pronounce,
2: Kaminsky? That's
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is there some comparison between between this rebellion in the 1640s and, say, the Great Rebellion in Ireland in 1641? So, like, you know, the Poles may taking the place of the English and Scottish landowners in Ireland. Is there some comparison there?
2: I never thought about this, but now that you mention it, yeah. Well, the thing is that Cossacks didn't care about the Ukra- the ordinary Ukrainians as in Ukrainian farmers. That's the thing why I don't, I'm not really, I wouldn't say that the Cossacks would be really this. We should be critical about the role in Ukrainian history. So, but the, the, the issues of oppression of certain like Orthodox group in the Polish state, you could you could look at it this this way.
1: Yeah, so there yeah. is, you know, it's, it's also part of this period of European history. So there's religious wars and um, social uprising stuff all over Europe in the, in the middle of the 17th century. So, uh, you know, I, I guess we all just have that in common. Yeah,
2: precisely, and I think that the history of Cossack uprisings were previously before Khmelnytsky's uprising. I think that Khmelnytsky was just the one who was more organized mm. and had better talents to organize his rebellion, rather than that he was in any way dif- more different from the other the previous organizers of a uprising. So his star- the uprising started in 1648, and it, well, it basically created the first Ukrainian state since the collapse of the Kievan Rus. And he was really, was really struggling to preserve the state. And this reason he joined after taking the territories of Ukraine from the Polish rule. He decided to join the union with Russian Tsar in 1654. For this reason, in the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire, he was celebrated as the great unifier of the two peoples, while Ukrainian nationalists throughout history Well, probably not in modern days, but definitely during while Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire, they were, they really hated him.
1: Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was thinking there are some Irish comparisons in the sense that the Irish rebels of the 17th century pledged allegiance to the monarchy of England against the Republic of Cromwell and so on. but. History is complicated, I suppose, is the takeaway. But the important thing from our perspective is that it's at this point that most of Ukraine became subject to the Russian Tsars, where some of it, I think, was left under Polish rule.
2: Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine and north and north of Ukraine became well became parts of the state. Was I have to remind you that south and east of Ukraine were vaguely inhabited. They were called like the wild fields because they were like no man's land between Ukraine. Well, I'll, I'll use the Ukraine, but she, I mean, yeah. referring just to modern day Ukrainian territories. So between Ukraine and the Crimean Khanate, and they were mutual raids when Crimean Tatars would be raiding U- Ukrainian territories, taking Ukrainians as booty and selling them as slaves. And vice versa, Ukrainian Cossacks would be raiding the Crimean Khanate and taking their people as slaves. So these territories were uninhabited because they were just dangerous. Hmm. So the, the part to the north from, from that, the, these territories were joined the Russian, were in the joined the union with the Russian Tsar but uh, in 1654. But then later in the 17th century, the Russian Tsar and the Polish state had, were eventually partitioned Ukraine among them. So the Ukraine was divided into what we call the left bank Ukraine and the right bank, bank so along the Dnipro River. And this was undone by partitions of Poland in the 18th century
1: right so you know for listeners who are not familiar you know poland was quite an important early modern kingdom but at the end of the 18th century it was totally partitioned between the surrounding powers so you know for our purposes like prussia Russia and Austria.
2: Yeah, so that's how most of Ukraine ended up within the Russian Empire. You could call this big Ukraine, greater mm. Ukraine. Basically all Ukraine except for the Western Galicia and Volim. And Galicia and Volin were taken by the Austrian in, Empire, along with, other, with Polish territories. This interesting thing that how Ukrainian nationalism was developing in the 19th century, there was a big risk that Western Ukraine would have developed different ethnic identities because they weren't part of the same state formation, the processes in Balkans, for example, Mm. when certain ethnic groups were divided and Serbs and Croats, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do any hot takes about that, but given the the process, the process when Ukrainians could have ended up becoming two separated identities, it could have happened in the 19th century, but it didn't. There was indeed strong intellectual connection among the Ukrainian intelligentsia in western ukraine and in the greater ukraine
1: one thing to emphasize i think which is interesting and you know which again irish listeners might not know is that western ukraine around lviv and so on wasn't under russian rule until 1939 i think isn't that right
2: yes i think even up to 1940 or because or of, or and because
1: of the war really not until 1945 i
2: suppose no no they they started all um, well they were at regressions uh, repressions of the Western Ukraine as early as 1940, unfortunately.
1: You know, was, my point was, you know, so Western Ukraine has has a different history, which isn't under Russia until you know the 20th century. And so, in the 19th century, you have the Austrian province, if you like, of Galicia, right, which is now in Ukraine, and you have, and all of the rest of Ukraine by that time under Russian tsarist rule is not that right.
2: Yeah, and there were also so the, the uh, central and northern Ukraine. were inhabited by ukrainians became part of the russian empire and also southeast of ukraine became colonized by ukrainians and russians and russian empire were inviting people from other states such as germany like mennonites were colonizing it and donetsk itself was founded by john hughes who's a welsh industrialist
1: that's a very interesting story and again you know a bit closer to home for irish listeners so john hughes you know Wales has a very rich coal mining tradition, and he brought this to Donetsk and what's now the east of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, it's like, it's unbelievable now, especially because the colonization. Now we're considering that it's colony, if it's overseas, it's, if it's far away. And if there's no land border the, with the metropole, but colonies well, continental Europe is the whole thing in itself. These parts of Ukraine were a bit of wild southeast, if you put, to put it. Compared to Wild West, but they were indeed after the Russian Empire crushed the well won the series of wars with the Tur- with Turkey in eighteenth century and crushed the Crimean Khanate. Well, basically, they annexated Crimea again. Well, mm. for the first time.
1: First time, yeah. And just to you know, again, for those who aren't familiar, the Crimean Khanate was a Muslim kingdom populated by descendants of an Asian people, the Tartars.
2: Mongol Tatars, yes. Mm. Yeah. So well the ending of the mutual raids uh, made the southeast of Ukraine inhabitable. And so many people were from Ukraine were moving there. There was these programs of relocation and granting them land, well basically granting Ukrainians land. And you will always know that if you see a Ukrainian, he probably wants the land. And the Ukrainians wow. back in the day, they
1: did. you know, you're in the right country for that mentality, you know. I know. Um, but you know, you know, moving on because, like I said, we have a thousand years of history to cover, and you know, we were doing pretty well because we've done about 500 years in about 20 minutes, which is quite good. But in the 19th century, nationalism becomes a thing. You know, to use modern terminology, everywhere. You know, the modern thinking about that didn't really exist before the 19th century, including in Ireland. Um, so how did Ukrainian nationalism as a modern kind of political idea come about in the 19th century? What were the kind of key thinkers and ideas there?
2: Traditionally, Ukrainian historians divide three stages of development of Ukrainian nation in the 19th century. So the first would be the ethnographic interest when intelligentsia would be going and exploring the ways of the ordinary folk and collecting ethnographic material and folk stories and poetry and songs. And I mean, it was pretty much the same around Europe. Later, there was this more of a political interest in learning, recording what Ukrainian peasants how, of of their ways and how they either live. And eventually this intelligentsia were developing the ideas of statehood and like political projects behind it. One of the political, political significant people of the period would be Tarashevchenko, of course, and Kirill, the brotherhood of Kirill and Methodius, that was a secret organization by Ukrainian cultural leaders, such as Tarashevchenko himself and Pantelimon Kulish and others. They were dreaming of an Ukrainian state. Tarashevchenko looks like James Connolly and he he has this beautiful mustache that was is very re- makes him very recognizable for Ukraine, I was when I saw James Conley, I was like, right, he looks too familiar. So Tarashevchenko is Ukrainian poet. He's called his father of nation, and his his book, uh, Kobzar, as a collection of poems in Ukrainian, is still deemed as the, the most influential Ukrainian poet. And he was one of those who were back in the day looking at the Cossack heritage and thinking that we want Ukrainian independent state and he was sent in exile within Russia or he was deported in, in prisons and like many but he was this well this, the strongest figure later on Ukrainian intelligentsia were contemplating Ukrainian independence so, and they were quite well connected within European intellectual circles and they they were keeping close close I am and the whole Irish home rule uh, movement and thinking if they want to proceed with that too. But ultimately, I would say that Ukrainians within the Russian Empire were more or less, in the Irish terms, home rulers. They didn't really have this strong tradition of secret societies. I'm not quite sure why. There probably should be some research about it. My sense was that they were rather thinking about autonomous Ukraine within the Russian Empire rather than an independent Ukrainian state. And for this reason, when one of the reasons why the Ukrainian state projects later in the century didn't survive the wars.
1: Right. I mean you mentioned serfdom before and the idea, I think, of Cossacks as free people as opposed to serfs. You know, it's as a nineteenth century idea. I mean, what was the relationship between the national and the social question, you know, in Irish terms, like freeing the surface versus being yeah. freeing Ukraine in very simple terms.
2: Yeah, so Ukraine, when Ukraine joined Union with the Russian Tsar and became part later part of the Russian Empire, we had this second wave of serfdom, which in, in Europe had been fading waning away but in the russian empire it was really strong it was cancelled only in 1861 but way up into the 20th century the serfs had to pay for their freedom and hardly anyone could afford it if you know what i mean so the serfdom was still real and the Rush of Jenkos literature and basically all liter- nationalist literature of 19th century Ukraine was all about the suffering, well, the, the plight of Ukrainian peasants under, uh, in the serfdom. And in this way, Ukrainians were no different from the Russians within the Russian Empire or any other nations within the Russian Empire. But indeed, this fight for, for personal freedom would, was part of the fight for national freedom.
1: Most of the peasants, for want of a better word, would have also been Ukrainian as well, though, right? Or most of the Serbs in that part of the Russian Empire.
2: Yeah, so Ukrainians were a very, very agricultural nation back then because the nobility and the people in the cities were mostly Russian or Polish, and Ukrainians were the overwhelming peasant majority. There was, there was Ukrainian intelligentsia as in teachers and teachers and certain intellectuals. So there were also Ukrainian industrialists, but there weren't that many of in this way why later in the 20th century communism didn't really appeal to Ukrainian people, even though this is something you probably wouldn't know this is just, you know, you see, he was part of the Soviet Union, so they were all communists. No. So you, there was no basic, no base for real socialism in Ukraine because these were there was not that many workers who would buy into this idea, so probably the there would be beetroot factories, like sugar factories and textile factories, and also the heavy industry in in the in Donbas region. Probably they would be the most having workers. But overall, Ukraine Ukraine was indeed a very rural farming country.
1: Now, you know, one of the strongest parallels, just in terms of chronology, I suppose, is. The First World War finished a lot of empires in Europe. It finished the British Empire in most of Ireland. It finished the Russian Empire, of course, which fell to revolution in 1917. And following that, there's a period, you know, which is known to history as the Russian Civil War, but it also involved kind of revolution and what Ukrainians now call, I believe, the First War of Independence. Can you briefly tell us what happened there and how the collapse of imperial power didn't result in an independent Ukraine in you know, Russian ruled Ukraine.
2: So one of the big differences between Ireland and Ukraine in in the First World War was that the Russian Empire was conscripting people to fight, and that's why the war was hugely unpopular. So my own great grandfather fought in the Greenfields of France in the Russian unit that was shipped all over across the oceans to France from the Russian Empire. For yeah, example. you said
1: this to me, sorry to jump in, Nadia, but you said this to me before that, uh, you know, Russians or Russian units fought in France. I, I'd never known that. But yeah, your grandfather ended up in France.
2: Yeah, my great grandfather. Yeah, he we have pictures in my family. Well, we yeah, have family album, which is now hopefully not gone in Kiev. There was no pride in serving in, in the Russian Imperial Army. And so the, the moods in the Russian Empire w- were very about the war, about fighting and about wars overall were really really well people were opposed to them so that's why the socialism was strong in this way so ukrainian politicians of the time were all socialists and they were all anti-war and it played well into their autonomous ideas well home rule if you like ideas about reformed russian empire so when in 1917 eventually the, the the first the February revolution took place and the provisional government was installed in the Russian Empire and the the royal family were removed from power. Ukraine declared Ukrainian people's Republic, which was part of this Russian uh, imperial formation still but they were really installing the well the Ukrainian government in in many respects but the, the reason why I'm saying this they didn't really have the army quite late into, Uh, 1917. And this was one of the reasons why Ukrainian state projects of the time didn't survive, because the war was hugely unpopular. And on the other hand, there was this big big, uh, Bolshevik movement in, in Russia. And they were building this Red Army that took over power in November 1917, which is coincidentally called it an October Revolution just because of the change of the cal- in the calendar. The devel- Ukrainian People's Republic declared independence only in February 1918 when the Bolsheviks were crushing Kiev. They- the
1: Bolsheviks occupied Kiev and then the Ukrainians declared independence.
2: Precisely. You'd <laughs> think that they would have seen this through but now that you're looking at how russians are invading ukraine these days and everybody's like taken as a surprise you probably think the ukrainian back then just wouldn't see this coming and they were hoping that this they would just declare independence and everybody would be happy about that
1: but the first world war was not over yet
2: no it wasn't so the this ukrainian people's republic was not only ravaged by bolsheviks they were in 1918 and in, in april they Germans invaded Ukraine. They they managed to install their puppet ruler of Ukraine, who was called Hetman, as in the Cossack leader, Skoropadsky. And he was basically representative of the big big industrialists and big farmers in Ukraine and wasn't that popular. But because of the, the German power, he stayed. Then in 1919, U- Ukrainian People's Republic won over them. Well, because of World War One ending, they managed the Germans, to The Germans take just control. left. They were obliged
1: to leave by the terms of the armistice.
2: Precisely. So people Ukrainian People's Republic is in the shape of a directory. The they retook the territories. And then this was a never-ending war between Ukrainian formations and... Bolsheviks and the White Army. And on the other hand, we have Polish state forces fighting for the same Ukrainian territories. And when we say Ukrainians, People's Republic, I don't mean all territory of Ukraine, because there was lots of other actors, as in Nestor Makhno, who was an anarchist leader. And there were also all, all sorts of no names in this time, but uh, the local... Leaders in the day, well, basically, men with guns were sort of ruling the times. The
1: novelist um, Bulgakov, I think, said that Kiev changed hands 19 times.
2: Yeah, yeah. Never thought of it this way, but yeah. Well, eventually, in the early 20s, Ukraine, all the Ukrainian state formations lost their power and had to were taken over either by Poland or by the future Soviet Union, by well, by the Bolshevik Russia, and that's how Ukraine again ended up partitioned again. And there's this big shame among Ukrainian political thought of these days that, oh, we lost the strife for independence back in the day. Why would we be in fighting amongst each other? Why wouldn't we just stay strong? Well, I personally think that. This is is only normal, like when you have different political strands and political thoughts and no nation is a monolith. And especially given the political circumstances back in the day, if Ukrainian political thought was so peaceful and so wishful that their independence would be welcome, they're sort of the the way that they are anti-war, this would somehow help them, save them. Well, they didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, that brings us on, you know, to, I guess, the the ancestor of of modern uh, political history in Ukraine. But, you know, the the Bolsheviks won the civil war in, in the Russian Empire. They basically reclaimed all the territory, I think, of the Russian Empire, with a few exceptions. But they instituted what they called, you know, their national policy. And how did this affect Ukraine in the 1920s?
2: Yeah, so the Bolsheviks very quickly realized that there was no political base for communism, Bolshevism and socialism in Ukraine, as I said, because this was a very rural economy and farmers wanted their land, they didn't want anything about the workers, if you know what I mean, and communism kind of presupposes the dictatorship of the proletariat. And Ukrainians were just alien to this. Like my mother told me the me- memories of my great-grandmother, who was the farming background. They would have the Ukrainian nationalists coming in during this war of independence to them and saying, oh, we want this big Ukraine. and We have want this in- independent Ukraine. And the great-grandmother was just not, <laughs> just not interested. Yeah. They were interested in having their land. That's it. No, all this political stuff is just irrelevant. So what happened in the 20s is that the Soviet Union declared this policy of indigenization Koreanization is in Ukrainian. And this was the policy around the world, the, the Soviet Union. They were sort of allowing local nationalists, basically, Rome free. So Ukraine ended up having a national revival back then with brilliant Ukrainian writers and scholars and historians and economists and Ukrainian schooling in Ukrainian. And eventually, after Lenin died, Stalin took over. And eventually he wasn't exactly happy with all this. Uh, nationalism that was in bloom. And since the end of 1920s, they pursued the policy to the opposite, to crush all this nationalism that so they have basically fostered and to turn and to impose well basically the Russian national project mm. which they wouldn't really admit but this is what you could see if Ukrainian speaking writers and are being driven to suicide or, or prosecuted and Ukrainian schooling was banned and so all sorts of things and so the, the purges of the 1930s followed the crushed basically the backbone of Ukrainian political life and also the famine of the 1932-33
1: yeah, I was just going to ask about that, you know, and so in Ukraine, it's known as the Holodomor. Can you explain, first of all, what does the term mean? But secondly, you know, what were what were the kind of contours of this great tragedy in 1932-33?
2: Right, so Holodomor means, well, more, it sounds a bit similar to Baltimore in Irish. For great for the great famine. So more in this situation in, in this case means mass death because of disease and a whole lot signifies the, the actual disease that was the cause. So mass mass death because of hunger doesn't mean famine means the mass death so since the end of 1920s the soviet union pursued this policy of collectivization when the land that the farmers got because of the, the revolution was taken from them to be part of the collective farms that would be owned by the state and of course ukrainians resisted it like the russians were basically well probably when i say russians because this was directed from moscow of course there were ukrainian members of the establishment who were ukrainian you would certainly know you would see that these were Ukrainian Ukrainian poor who were driving this policy on the ground. Soviets so they might, were,
1: be, might be a better term than, than Russians, I suppose.
2: I don't know. Soviets is not, is not even a term to me. To me, Soviets is just a period of time. It's not, okay. It doesn't really identify anything. Uh, so the land and the stock were taken from the people and their houses if they were owning in excess. And this was the period of when big farmers were stripped of their property. They were left to die. They were children would die in the streets. So the big farmers, Kurkuli in Ukrainian. K- uh, Kulaks, I
1: think, is the, the English. In Russian. It
2: it, yeah. it was in Russia. It was Kulak ah, okay. in Russia. Porkul in Ukrainian. My own maternal grandmother, her family. They weren't that rich, but they were like big, reasonably big farmers. And their some of their estate was taken from them. But then the stories from my mother's village were that when the stock was taken from the from the villagers, they their women went back to the collective farm and said, "We're taking our cows," and they took the cows and just went off nobody could do anything to them so you know like this was a big political process and it wasn't even in all throughout ukraine what was happening was that the ukrainian farmers started uprising lots and lots and lots of them so eventually this became the pretext for what what the state started to crush this resistance and in 1932 supposedly there were plans to provide certain amounts of harvest Produced by the farmers, so that they would submit it, providing it to the state. And supposedly, the official line was that the farmers were sabotaging this, and they yeah. wouldn't be giving the crop. So that's why this policy would have to be implemented. But well, in in fact, the, all food was repositioned from Ukrainian. It's
1: difficult if it's your own history, to be honest. to talk about this passionately, I suppose. But, you know, scholars debate whether this is an attempt to crush the Ukrainian nation or also, you know, the Kazakh nation, for example, over in the East, or whether it's part of, you know, communist ideology or whether it's both, you know, I mean, what would you think about that?
2: my only argument to this is that coincidentally all this process was restricted to the territory of Ukraine and there was the Ukrainians were prevented from leaving the territories, from fleeing from hunger, from the from the famine along the border. So you'd think that if this was some sort of policy that would it would have been ubiquitous among around Russia, but it wasn't. About the same time only Kazakhstan had a famine because they were nomads that Russians tried to crush and turn them into settled people, and it also led to mass starvation for different reasons than Ukrainians. So, yeah, I'm very skeptical about other ways of interpreting it. And there's a lot of documentary evidence that this was the party line. And, Mm. yeah, I can't remember the name of the book. There was this comparison of the famine in Ukraine and in Ireland. And there was fantastic essay say about Polish intel- intelligence about Odomar and that nobody could believe them that mm. this was true. About 4 million Ukrainians starved to death.
1: I mean, you know, like I said, it's impossible to ask someone to be dispassionate about this, about their own history. I mean, but... In terms of memory, is there a parallel between the way that the Great Famine in Ireland is remembered and the way that more is remembered in Ukraine?
2: What I've studied about the Irish memory, I wrote an essay during my master's about it, about the folklore, the memories of the Great Famine in Ireland in the folklore collection. And I was thinking that, indeed, there are so many parallels in Ukrainian memories, as in, nobody died in my family. I swear to God, nobody died in my family, that's what I know. I can't believe it now, having studied the critical views and the Irish memories of the famine this cannot be true that everybody's saying that nobody died in their family for example so it must be the the silences or the distortions or the shame that is behind it yeah um,
1: Cormac McCrotter wrote a lot about this in the Irish context you know about how villages would always say it wasn't so bad here it was worse in the next village it's some, sort, it's some sort of psychological self-defense thing I think
2: yeah I was doing my readings for the essay and I was reading Cormac's work too and it was like this is like in my mother's village the famine wasn't that bad mm-hmm. this, that's this literally the memory but then on the other hand on my father's side his maternal so his mother lived my mother's parents well they, they weren't born during the famine but my father's mother survived the great famine the famine after the World War II the World War II and the purges and now she's she had to flee Donetsk from the Russian invasion these days. She, she, yeah, she's seen it all, and she, so we have the story about her, her mother taking my grandmother to the market and leaving her there on the corner in hope that a more well-off family will take her in. But she no, but she came back. She couldn't just leave her daughter who was i think she was five or so so she she tried this and then she came back to her and yeah but this memory persists that she would think that how how desperate a mother should be to give away her daughter when it wasn't exactly the safest thing to do to a five-year-old child
1: yeah i mean that shows that that shows how desperate times must have been really moving on from the you know Unbelievable horrors of the 1930s. And we also, you know, have the great purges, the great terror in the Soviet Union. But, you know, to to another catastrophic event, which is the Second World War, historian Timothy Snyder wrote in his book Bloodlands that the two places that suffered most were Belarus and and Ukraine in terms of territory in this period. You know, Western Ukraine was part of Poland. The Ukrainians, I understand, didn't get on great there in the interwar period. It's now Western Ukraine was part of Poland that was invaded by the Soviet Union in 1940. It's part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Germans. But then all of the what's now Ukraine was invaded by Nazi Germany in 1941. A lot of the Holocaust happened in Ukraine and it was seen as some of the worst fighting in the Second World War. And this period, Nadia, you know, I won't ask you to summarize it all, but basically in terms of the ideas of, you know, fascism and collaboration versus Ukrainian nationalism and so on. How does this period still reverberate? How is it still used by by various people, or how is it remembered by various people today?
2: It's a huge question, but I'll try to answer. We are aware that Ukrainians barely survived Holodomor and mass purges by the beginning of the World War II. So you'd think that the popular resistance to the Soviet rule was real in in the greater Ukraine was crushed. But then there was strong resistance in Western Ukraine that was exemplified by the organization of Ukrainian nationalists own was the political wing and the pretty much terrorist organization back then was led by the was part it consisted of ukrainians in Ukraine Western Ukraine and also in, in emigration who were coordinating their subversive activity and they weren't that active but still they were carrying out certain targeted assassinations of Polish politicians and when the when Germany invaded Ukrainian nationalists split into, what we, you would call now Banderevtsi and Melnikivsi, And we are probably more aware of Ban- Stepan Bandera, who was became the leader of the more active wing, who were eager to fight, to co- collaborate with Germany, thinking that Germans will grant Ukraine independence, and certain numbers of Ukrainian nationalists joined the SS. There were two divisions, SS Halichina and SS Nachtigal. Who were yeah literally say, well in the parts of the German army. Also, there was a wing of melnikivtsi who were opposed to active service and were rather looking forward to stay keep keep the head low and see how the invasion goes. And later on, start their subversive activity. There was horrendous infighting, and the melnikivtsi apparently may have been leaking um, information about the to the Germans. So. As you imagine, the sort of virus, the fighting for independence, they are prone to splits and prone mm-hmm. to very bloody infighting, as you know from the history of the IRA. Mm. So that was what, what was going on. And then in 1942, the Ukrainian insurgent army, Ukra- Ukrainian povstanska Army, as in UPA, Mm-hmm. came into being which was an amalgamation of this own and other forces and basically they were fighting the soviet invaders the, the nazis and polish forces and polish forces were represented by armia krajova a nationalist force and also armia ludova the basically the socialist force now i gotta say to you that Nad-
1: own... sorry i gotta jump in though i mean you know stepan bandera is today you know he's, he's still referenced and he's a hero to some Ukrainians. But you mentioned to me that, you know, you don't think he's a figure worthy of great admiration.
2: Well, he is one of the, well, the leaders of a nationalist organization of, well, fighting for Ukrainian freedom. And in this way, he's the, the go-to figure for modern-day Ukrainian far-right. Because during the Soviet times, all Ukrainian nationalism was demonized. And if you have a, a, an ethnic, a, a, a certain identity other than the Russian identity or this this branded like Unionist, like Soviet identity, you are very bad, like a monster nationalist. So so since independence, there was this movement about for Ukrainian nationalists, like as in far right nationalists, that Stepan Bandera should be glorified and taken as a national leader and hero of Ukraine. And there was these debates about him being awarded a, a hero. So there's this lot of this politics behind it. But well, historically speaking, he was doing what he's doing and far that he was leading was part of and own weren't they were doing all sorts of things and there is no need to say that ukraine should worship them for what they did Mm. we should acknowledge all sides like for example like nationalist historiography are really looking for to whitewash the crimes that they committed i mean imagine like 1944 there was huge ethnic conflict in Volin in the northwest of ukraine where ukraine uh, were killing the Poles, uh, ethnically cleansing the Poles, and the Poles, like Army of Krayover, were ethnically cleansing Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And this was on a massive scale, like maybe around 20,000 Ukrainians and Poles, as a modest estimation died at that time. So these were gruesome times. And and
1: to, and to what extent were um, Ukrainian nationalists involved in the Holocaust of of the Jews at the time?
2: There were definitely Ukra- certain Ukrainian forces collaborating with the Germans in uh, execution of Jews. I'm not, I can't say how many off the top of my head, but this was also a fact as well. There were trials, post-World War trials in the Soviet Union on collaborationists for committing war crimes. And well, from the research I did for the collaboration legislation in Ukraine, which all of a sudden is very relevant, apparently these trials on the collaborationists in the world after World War II were, were reasonably Fair and certainly some Ukrainians were tried for that.
1: I mean, and, and the Ukrainian nationalists, though, it's an interesting story because there is a significant insurgency in, in West Ukraine even after the Second World War against renewed Soviet rule.
2: It lasted well into the 1950s. It was restricted to the Western Ukraine and especially Carpathian regions like the mountains where the Soviets had no prevalence and had no military strength. Yeah, think of it as a long lasting insurgency. Probably it wasn't all that glorious, great man with rifles. Hmm. You would think that they would also be policing their communities and these that the UPA committed against Ukrainian women, like gendered violence, who were branded as spies. But the thing is that because the insurgency was so long lasting, the the UPA became the bogeyman for the Mm -hmm. Russians. Yeah, we're still branded as Banderevti. So these days, even the Russian invaders right now, the occupants coming into Ukraine at the moment, you have recordings of how they're threatening Ukrainian children and women and civilians saying, oh, you're Banderevsky. Being Ukrainian, I can laugh at it, if you know what I mean. Mm. This, this is that the, the monster of Bandera and Banderevsky from World War II is yeah. still scaring the Russians. This is, to me, it's just... Yeah, it's very funny.
1: You know, though it strikes me, you know, and this is as an outsider in a Western European from a different political culture in some ways, this word fascist in the Soviet Union, it seems to me, has a much more broad meaning than it really should have. You know, so the the fascist means the enemy rather than you know a specific political philosophy it seems to me the Soviet Union is anti-fascist and yet the Soviet Union is itself a totalitarian state you know so can you help us kind of work the meaning of this word fascist is in the Soviet Union and Soviet discourse you know in the late 20th century
2: well, to some extent I'm really puzzled by this myself my only answer to this is that the Soviet Union had to build their certain their identity after World War II on this victorious notion that they are the victors of the evil and why exactly they picked fascism rather than Nazism. I'm not quite sure myself, but the fascist became mm. the, the bogeyman. And they're still using it for domestic consumption. When before 2013 Russians were sort of playing against the Ukraine, aligning with the EU, they would I would really notice this in the news that the Ukrainian fascists were mm. like fascist um fascist Europe. And this is a very strange phenomenon that probably yeah it, it marries like many many books.
1: I mean, this is the thing. So, I mean, there are fascists in the world and it is an ideology, you know, extreme nationalism and hatred of people and, and and you know, hatred of anyone who's outside your group and so on like this. But that's not the way it's always used in, in Russia, though. It has a much broader meaning. I'm not sure if you could disturb Bandera as a fascist or not. He's certainly like a, you know, far right nationalist. But I mean, so fascists existed. On the other hand, that's not necessarily what the Soviet Union or, or Russia means when they use that word.
2: Yeah, it's like the historical fascism, Mussolini's fascism, is definitely not what they're meaning. They were using the fascist invaders, meaning Germans. Yeah. Even though we know that the Germans were Nazis. So, I mean, that's that's yeah. to do
1: with the communist ideology um, of the time, you know, fascism as the last stage of capitalism and, uh, and so on, like that, I suppose. But,
2: yeah, probably you're right. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that's the way maybe. Western
1: communists talked about it anyway. So, Nadia, before we leave World War Two, you know, as against the narrative that the Ukrainians were in some way special collaborators, the president of Ukraine, the current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has noted that his family, for example, who were, of course, Jewish, fought in, in the Red Army and you know, all the way to Berlin, in his words. So that's part of the Ukrainian story of World War II as well.
2: It is. I mean, of course, they had no choice but to be conscripted to the army. And like my family, thankfully, survived the war because my grandparents were too young to serve in the army my great-grandparents were a bit too old to serve in the army yeah you know, like my grandfather and his father were interned by the germans and like the family memory was that they were held in concentration camp Well, the truth is that they it was an internment ca- camp and they luckily escaped so there was this centralized what is called partisans like the coordinated insurgency by moscow and the local fighting the germans in the rear, and also there were ukrainians serving in the red army that were, take, were taking well, berlin and ravaging germany in the aftermath of world war ii so yeah there is also this part of the story that sure ukrainians were victimized in the world war ii like one of the peoples who were part of the victorious red army but they were also hurt traitors of horrific ravaging in the aftermath. There were also Ukrainians taken as Austarbeiters in Germany. Like my great-aunt would have been taken but my great-grandfather swapped her for himself because you imagine like a teenage girl being taken to Germany. Like God knows where she would have ended. and he was just working in the family and supposedly sending back home so it wasn't too bad for him. So yeah all sorts of stories and reprisals for the Red Army insurgency by the Germans that, that were taking place. But definitely not one single narrative there and not one single side that Ukrainians were on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In the aftermath of World War Two, though, one of the things that Stalin, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, of course, did was he moved the Soviet Union westward, which included annexing a whole load of Poland, the Polish state, which was also historically West Ukraine, as well as, you know, the Polish state. So and also then in the 1950s, Nikita Khrushchev, who succeeded Stalin, added Crimea to the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic. So but the current contours of of Ukraine Ukrainian state kind of emerged in this uh, post war period right
2: exactly yeah so parts of romania were taken into the modern ukraine where Ukraine ethnically ukrainians were living and parts of poland and there was this operation visla or in english you probably say operation Wistula, when there was this population swap so ukrainians were deported from poland from the territories that were not included in the soviet new soviet borders and yeah, there's this big longing of Ukrainians from that Lymkiivshchyna, like, like this region, and others who have lost their homes, but they still know that they used to, their generations live used to live there. Yeah, and the Crimea was added to the ter- territory of Ukraine as well. The problem with Crimea. That was and remains that scarcity of fresh water there so logistically it made more sense for ukrainian soviet republic to mind the crimea in the re- reconstruction after the war because the the water was flowing in through the channel from dnipro river so that was one of the major rationales for khrushchev to do this but of course, that the russians for many reasons for them crimea seems like their sacred land and the fact that khrushchev Gave it to Ukraine. Gave rise to stories that he was drunk when he signed off that decree. Apparently, this is not valid, and Crimea should have been given back to Russia after the independence. But yeah, in fairness, it was an official decision by the USSR.
1: And Khrushchev was born in Ukraine, but not ethnically Ukrainian. Have I got that right?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, if he was born in Ukraine, he apparently counts as a Ukrainian. But in the narratives, you wouldn't hear like saying, "Oh, he was a famous Ukrainian. He was leader of the Soviet Union." So there was this construction, well this this identity that was forged like the uh, that was devoid of nationalism, this Soviet like unionist identity, like well basically we'd think that this was some sort of an imperial identity, ethnic origins or other identities don't matter. And yeah, my take would be that he probably was one of those people who was a proud Soviet man rather than a Ukrainian.
1: But I mean, I guess he didn't transfer Crimea to Ukrainian socialist republic out of Ukrainian patriotism though.
2: No, no, because it's it's a liability. Crimea is something that requires well, it's a cost to maintain rather than an asset that you're profiteering from. You know, maintenance of water supply is is not an easy thing to maintain. Well that's the reason why the Russians after occupation of the Crimea in 2014 are really struggling.
1: Well that's one of the grievances, isn't it, that they can't get the water supply.
2: Exactly. Well that's the re- well one of the things when humanitarian things that Ukraine have to decide Whether they supply the water for the sake of our people there, or they make Russian life easy, or just say, well, our our land was taken, so just do what you like about it.
1: Just on a slight tangent, but just for Irish listeners again, um, of course, the Crimea uh, features in Irish history because of Irish soldiers who served there in the Crimean War in the mid-19th century. But uh, I guess that's kind of a tangent to our story. There's various songs and all about Irish soldiers who who served there you know
2: yeah but well I've lived in Belfast for a year, year and a half and you, when you look at the geography so that when you look at um, Kieran Carson's Belfast confetti I mean it's it's born by the troubles but when you look at the street names all of a sudden it's like I know this labyrinth so well Balaclava Raglan Inkerman Odessa Street why can't I escape? Every movie is punctuated. Crimea Street, dead end again. And some of these streets are still
1: there. This is Sebastopol Street in Belfast, isn't it? Which are and these for people not aware are all battlefield sites from the Crimean War in the eighteen fifties.
2: Alma Street as well, and it was so striking when I was in class, looking and prepping for the class, and looking at these poems. Like, well, why exactly are all these Ukrainian place names featuring in the one of the key poems about the troubles? Well, that's really the reason why. Well, for the record, there is also a Lemberg Street often a Donegoa Road in Belfast. I used to live nearby. <laughs> it was very surreal to walk in. Lemberg is the old name, the German name for Lviv in western Ukraine. Yeah, I don't know the story behind it, but this, it was, yeah.
1: Interesting. I mean, I guess moving on, though, towards, you know, the, the end of the Soviet period, I think the late Soviet period is the one that's most difficult for people from the West to kind of visualise. You know, it's it's quite a different political culture from anything familiar, I think, to us. In terms of Ukraine in the late Soviet period, so from, say, Brezhnev until the end of the Soviet Union, was Ukraine perceived as a rest of suppressed nationality? Or did Ukrainian identity start to fade under, you know, Soviet rule and education system and things like that?
2: Resistance in Ukraine was growing and there was this strong dissident movement since 1970s and Ukrainian intelligence would be imprisoned. So the dissent was growing, absolutely. And even though there were bans and teachings Ukrainian at schools and added payments to teachers teaching in Russian since the 1980s, Ukrainian identity and language didn't wane to a meaningful extent. So in the 80s, when Gorbachev declared glasnost, especially in the backdrop of the of the Chernobyl disaster, there was this upsurge of cultural and ecological movements that was basically hidden, like very mild Ukrainian nationalism, reviving politically because they for the first time in decades there was space for a certain dissent. There were protests and there were cultural groups like one like my father used to take part in one in Spachina as in heritage in Kiev and uh, the popular movement Narodny Ruch was emerging across Ukraine. So they were protesting on the backdrop of the Chernobyl catastrophe and eventually this this emerged as a strong political movement that, that led to independence of Ukraine after well, after the referendum by putting an end to the Soviet Union basically.
1: Just to again to, to sketch out the chronology for our listeners so in 1991 there were referendums in the various republics of the Soviet Union whether they wanted to continue with a new federation or whether they wanted to be independent Now, the interesting thing, I think, from my perspective is that in theory, in the Soviet Union, this had always been the right, but it was not actually possible under the Soviet Union for most of the time. How did it come to be that like a referendum on independence was granted to the various republics?
2: Yeah, so this was definitely a possibility, but nobody would ever, ever lie. This would be a sort of dissent, you know what I mean, that this was not a thing, the Soviet government.
1: Yeah, the funniest thing, sorry to interrupt, Nadia, I mean, the funniest thing for me, the weirdest thing about the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union had a constitution, which was in theory totally democratic. And where everything was, demo, you know, elected up from the factory up to the republic, and yet the reality was obviously something very different. So you know, it's 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 something that's quite hard to understand.
2: I know this is something that we can see traces of it in Ukrainian legal system now. I, as a lawyer, really. St- was really suffering about that when, I, as a young graduate, I went to practice, and I realized that the real practice is nothing compared to the actual law. And you could frame it in the way that, by, in the way of lack of rule of law, but there is also this big big legal culture behind it. And takes, I think it takes generations to change, if you know what I mean.
1: Sure. But going back to 91, though, so how did it come to be a referendum in Ukraine and the other republics as well?
2: But the first referendum was early on in 91, and for the majority of people voted, oh, we needed, we need a reformed Soviet Union. I'm not mistaken, like more than 70% voters were in favor of a reformed Soviet Union rather than independence. And then later in, in August 91, Ukraine declared independence on the backdrop of the between the leaders of the Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, uh, Soviet republics, So well, eventually Ukraine just declared independence, and it was it was affirmed on the first of December by another referendum, where the same amount, like more than seventy percent, voted in favor of independence. And you see that the, the value of referendums in a totalitarian state is very much overrated. If you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean again, I, I've read that, but I find it hard to understand. Them. I mean, so how can you go from a majority saying we want to stay in the Soviet? union to so a, a huge majority now saying we want to leave the soviet union i don't understand how to interpret that really
2: well the thing is that there is no free elections no free referendum if you know what i mean so however you vote people were afraid that their views would affect them when when they were asked would you like to stay in the soviet union in the first half of 1991 they were f- i i would interpret this as they were afraid if they said we are up for independence that they would be prosecuted that's as simple as, as that and when they saw that by december that the soviet union collapsed that it was safe to vote in favor of independence then they could do it i had a teacher in school who was proudly against this referendum and she was telling me this in 2004 and i was thinking this was so you know so interesting that it was that she stayed in this country even though she was opposed to independence so
1: the ukraine that became independent in 1991 you know how to put this was it like a reborn ukrainian nation or was it like a soviet successor state you know just continuing on like before?
2: I would probably compare this to Ireland after independence. You just don't reinvent the state straight away. You are keeping the institutions, and they change over time with the decisions, or with with certain upheavals. So Ukraine, to a large extent, after independence, was pretty much the same, and the the political structures were the same, and the political actors were basically the same. Political party functionaries. There was this popular movement, like a new party. Dissidents were released from the labor camps and from prisons after independence and they were very eager queuing up to run in elections but it wasn't that strong in the first election returned the president the Leonid Kravchuk who was the Soviet Communist Party leader and there was nothing exciting about that and he was his opponent, Vyacheslav Chernobyl, the leader of the popular movement he died in a car crash and there were these rumours that he was assassinated rather than it was an accident because he would have been sort of, if he would won we would have different political direction, Emerging in Ukraine but yeah who knows
1: like in terms of former eastern bloc countries you know on one side of Ukraine there is Poland Poland has become something quite different from you know communist Poland in the sense of you know you have democratic elections not always particularly pleasant people elected but Free elections have joined the European Union In the economic side it's very much been privatized in Poland. On the other side of Ukraine is, of course, Russia. And after a kind of a chaotic period in the 1990s, I mean, Russia in some ways reverted back to a very authoritarian system, you know, under the current president. I mean, is Ukraine's experience kind of a mixture of the two of them or, you know, how would you describe it since independence?
2: Well, I would describe Ukrainian political structure as competitive oligarchy. Well, since the second half of the 1990s, Ukrainian President uh, Leonid Kuchma was trying to install the same political regime as Putin did in Russia, when based on the oligarchs who were holding powers in most political parties, and they were ripping off the state budget from brutal and uh, were very swift privatization of the Soviet property of the All the industries that used to be the state property. What happened in Russia is that Putin won and subdued the oligarchs to his rule. And what happened in Ukraine is that no president ever succeeded in that, thankfully. So there was this competition between the oligarchs and the presidents and and we had democratic elections but then what was on offer was not so much popular parties but rather certain political projects that were organized. I mean there were some certain grassroots movements but because of this political culture that there was no tradition of long-standing political parties and people were very cynical towards the state so you would have rather this empty political Like, for example, like block of Yulia Moshenko, the the evergreen oligarch.
1: Lady who looks a little bit like Princess Leia from Star Wars.
2: (laughs) She does. And she, it seems like she's growing younger every year. (laughs) And so, yeah, so these political projects would be changing their names and their platforms. But basically, they're just big, large business juggling.
1: So it'd be almost like in an Irish context, if, say, Michael O'Leary was uh, organizing a political party against, you know, Dermot Desmond or something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah. Like there's this thing saying that, oh, Ukrainian political spectrum is so, so diverse. Or parties are changing. Well, you if you, if you see through that, you see that pretty much it's about the struggles of economic interests. And of course, I mean, I'm not saying I'm all about the economy here, but the political spectrum of Ukraine is really shaped in, to a large degree by the oligarchs. So what happens in 2004 that when President Kuchma tried to, do, to follow the Russian steps and install his successor, Viktor Yanukovych? in the elections so the elections were botched and ukrainian people unlike our neighbors they didn't swallow it and i was just finishing school at that time and there were massive protests like first maidan protests maidan means the square yeah ma- means square and you've heard maidan Takhvir protests uh and so it's the the turkey court that was adopted because ukrainian has always been close to the turk tur- Turkish world so anyway protests were rife and Kuchma had to go, go back. He was ready to crack down on, U- on Ukraine like the Russians would do. And as a school kid, I had a classmate whose father was working in security services and he had, had friends in Russian FSB, and supposedly they were in Kiev at that time. And they were ready to assist the friendly republic with crack down, but Kuchma back, backed. And we had the, the at that time the new president, Viktor Yushchenko, who had been poisoned supposedly by the... By nerve agent, but we can never were able to prove that. So Viktor Yanukovych made his way to the Ukrainian power and was the president from 2010 when he was eventually elected and into 2013 when, and he did try to install an authoritarian regime. And once again, it was civil society were fighting back really hard. He was trying to concentrate all the wealth in the country and subjugate other powers and oligarchs and civil society to him. But what happened was that he's been flirting with Russia all along. And imposing certain legislation against the constitution that Russian language would have some certain regional status in Ukraine. Uh, Also, like he prolonged the treaty that Russian Navy will stay in the the Crimea almost indefinitely, which was blatant treason, but... He could, he, that's what he did. But he was also flirting with the EU. So when he refused to sign the EU Association Agreement in autumn 2014, the broad public exploded in Ukraine and it caused the second, like Maidan, Euromaidan. Euro
1: Sorry, can I just interrupt you there just before we get on to the, the, the 2014 Maidan revolution? So with regard to the issues involved, you know, ostensibly it's actually about EU membership. So, you know, Yanukovych tried to cancel discussions with the EU in favor of the president of Russia's at the time plan for a Eurasian Union. Why were Ukrainians ordinary citizens so set and so involved with this? I mean, was it a question of Ukrainian nationalism? or And like, you know, so Ukrainian speakers against Russian speakers is sometimes being presented or and or? Was it a question of, you know, desire for the rule of law, for more genuine democracy and, and that kind of thing? Or both?
2: No, well, it was very plain, well, very down-to-earth, because well, it would be very hard for anyone to understand the scale of the EU association agreement with Ukraine in terms of trade, tariffs, and all these arrangements, like nobody still knows what this in apart what, what it means apart from experts who are working in person in and expert. But the one down-to-earth thing was about visa-free travel. That was one of the main benefits of this. And when Yanukovych refused to sign it, it struck chords with huge numbers of people. But what happened was that, so, well, ultimately, when he refused to sign abruptly without warning, so the negotiations were going really well and people were just waiting to apply for biometric passports so that they can travel to the EU with no restrictions and it's hard I think it's very hard to tr- for members of the EU to embrace what actually what it actually means to live where uh, in in a country that you need to apply visas to go everywhere Ukraine has visa-free arrangements with many countries in the world but uh, the EU are our neighbors and part of this European space that we share and so it was very painful when all of a sudden with no explanation just well with suspected pressure from Russia and the college refused to sign it so it spurred initially it spurred the protests were quite small because they were restricted to people who actually know what was going on and I wasn't even taking part in the first phase because I was yeah I was very bitter about it and I wouldn't allow myself even to accept that there was a chance that Yanukovych would have signed it. But what happened then is that around the night on the 1st December, Yanukovych decided to crack down on these uh, very scarce protests in Maidan. And so the special forces called Berkut, uh, this kind of eagle that is uh, widespread in Ukraine, they cracked down on literally like students and kids who were just spending the nights in Maidan on, on the central square. And my best friend was there, so... I woke up in the morning and I was terrified that she could have been beaten up, you know, to half death because of that. And this, in its turn, caused massive protests across the country. It reminds me of the Easter Rising when maybe not that many people supported the Easter Rising, but the brutal execution of the participants actually started such huge protests that would, wouldn't have been stopped and that's what happened in 2013.
1: No, you could compare it to say the first civil rights march in Derry where it was very badly attended and then they were they were beaten up when it was shown on TV uh, and then there was huge protests in Derry and elsewhere. It's a little bit like that maybe.
2: Yeah, so yeah and the protests were massive and indeed they were in different regions like people would be storming like state agencies so this was a big protest against state brutality and people will be forcefully Disappeared and beaten and murdered by the state. So within from twenty second of January, t- uh, two thousand fourteen, into twenty fourth of February, within a month, like almost a hundred people were murdered, and they are called. So they referred to as a heavenly company because the protesters, like the ones who were shielding the other protesters, were organizing in companies, like a hundred people or so. So they were called the, the company. This kind of the women's company. This different. Kinds of companies, and this was the Heavenly Company. And uh, well, Yanukovych fled himself at some at some point early in the twenties. I'm not sure which day. I remember really well that it was a Friday and after, on Thursday, almost all these hundred people were murdered by snipers in Central Square. He fled. There were recordings of him loading his trucks with all his riches and it was so, so embarrassing to watch him flee. He fled to Russia, to Rostov, I don't know, and from there he sent a communication that he's still a legitimate president and... He asked Russia to intervene.
1: And still claims to be the president to this day, I believe.
2: Oh, yes. Yes. He recently, before this invasion, before 24th of February, he's filed a claim. So what Ukraine, so Ukrainian state didn't have a procedure to remove the absent president from the office because he's physically not in the country and he can't perform his functions. So they had to come up with a certain legal solution. So the parliament of Ukraine voted to remove him from the office because he wasn't there, supposedly shortly before the recurrent Russian invasion he filed claim to one of Ukrainian administrative courts saying that all that uh, undermining the claim that that decision by the Parliament was illegal. And I imagine that if the court he won this claim after the Russian invasion, he would have been sort of reinstated by Russia as a puppet president. And but in fairness, after that, after he fled, uh, and, and after that decision, Ukraine, Ukrainian parliament called for a new presidential election, and a new president was voted in. It was Petro Poroshenko, and then the new parliament was voted in later. And I, when I worked in that for a year in that parliament too.
1: Just to clarify, though, on one point, I guess you'd have to say is a hostile narrative but the hostile narrative of the maidan revolution is that it was you know a nationalist revolution or they use the term a coup and it was against the russian speakers who they wanted to exclude from from ukraine and, and so on to, in order to join the west and so on like this
2: well i mean some people were indeed not many people didn't support it, these protests you know i don't i don't want to sign like the It was this country was united no it came, drew a wedge between families and friends, and that it was really a controversial issue. And but it was never aimed at anything beyond Yanukovych signing refusing to sign the EU association agreement and then when the crackdown started it was not it was about fair investigation of the crimes committed against the protesters and there were years of police brutality that were that the, the protesters were demanding to to provide remedy for and to have reattestation of all police forces all of that and of course it was about the rule of law that was really ditched by Yanukovych throughout the years i know that there are people who will never hear me when i say that ukraine russian speakers in ukraine were not oppressed and that it was not about ukraine not joining nato i mean i'm really conscious of that but to go and look at the facts and go actually look at what you know like the, the do the media analysis and ask people who were there i was there in the protests and i was i wasn't taking part you know like throwing petrol bombs but i was in the sort of close to the front line and I was definitely not a Nazi.
1: And I know now we're getting very close to the present and we're getting close to events which are, you know, current and and difficult for you to talk about. But like, you know, basically, how did the Russian state react to the events in Maidan? The fall of Viktor Yanukovych. So
2: the backdrop of Maidan, they started invasion of Crimea. They had a presence of the, they were in control of the the fleet of the Navy in Crimea since the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was a treaty between Ukraine and Russia. And there were certain rules about how they should be conducting their military activity there, the limits on personnel. But as investigations show that they were increasing their military presence Quite early on, maybe even before the the, the protests. So Russian state has issued honorary medals to the uh, the military for liberating the Crimea that predate even the referendum that they conducted, they held at the gunpoint in March, I think. 2014.
1: But just to be just to be clear, you know, for people who haven't who didn't follow events at the time, you know, so Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula in the aftermath of the the Maidan events, and then um, in the east of Ukraine, the conflict started with Russian involvement. Let's say I'm saying coyly. Uh, You know, can you basically explain what happened there?
2: The increased military presence of the Russian military in the Crimea. They took control of the state body in in there and the local you could call them local parliament in there and then afterwards they held a so-called referendum where people declared that they want to join russia and that was that they yeah went on to forcefully disappear people who were dissenting and intimidated journalists and activists and imprisoned many as around 130 people detained ukrainians and crimean tatars attained as political prisoners from the Crimea so over the years I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the figure of the force uh, the enforced disappearances were as well, but they were happening early on 2014 after Russian occupiers came in and yeah and they've been transferring population of Russians into the occupied Crimea which is against international humanitarian law on the pretext of settling new military, new teachers, and uh, new doctors from other depressed regions. So they would be sent, giving them better salaries when they'd be moving to Crimea, which is against the international law, but sure, didn't never stop them. And what happened in the east of Ukraine? So since, since spring 2014, well into the summer, they started stirring up protests, like pro-Russian protests in southeast of Ukraine, like Odessa, Kharkiv, Dnipro, Kherson, Nikolaev. Donetsk, Luhansk, and...
1: predominantly Russian-speaking areas we, we should clarify.
2: Yeah, you would be you would think that they would be more Russian speaking than the others. You'd I wouldn't see, say that they were like overwhelmingly Russian speaking. You'd hear more Russian there, yes. And what was happening that in Kharkiv and Dnipro and Zaporizhia and Odessa and even Nikolaev and, and and Kherson, these protests weren't successful there would be resistance. So they would be trying to encircle the state regional administrations and there would be response from the pro-Ukrainian protesters and theirs would be in Odessa it turned very ugly and few, some people even died for Russian people and they're now celebrating it as a certain sort of massacre and yeah it was really it was brutal back then but they never succeeded in these regions but what happened when they started doing the same in Donetsk and Luhansk after the, the protest the Ukrainian power was quite weak and also Ukrainians military and the secret service were were a bit endemic of russian collaborators so these territories didn't stand up to these russian these kind of pseudo protests and eventually russia started sending in supplies and unmarked men and recruiting locals to to start a sort, sort of an insurgency but the fir- even the, before that the first cities Kramatorsk and Slavyansk in the Donbas region were taken by the forces of this unmarked uh, like Russian special forces led by Girkin, who is the Russian nationalist and he is really raging at the moment because Russia is losing the war against Ukraine <laughs> and so after the Russia started bringing in the weapons and recruiting locals and sending in the Russian curators the, the massive military campaign started because Ukrainian army started fighting to take to get them out and they took control of certain districts of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, regions and it really is infuriating that you even have to say that this was something like you know like Russia backed separatists when it was the trouble that was organized by Russia in a way that would be easy to sell that this is some sort of ethnic Russians fighting for their freedom or Russian-speaking Ukrainians fighting for their against oppression. But I mean, I know that there are people who will never believe whatever I say in this respect, but this is, yeah, my my family, is, my, my father is, is from Donetsk and my family had his, my grandfather and my aunts and my cousins had to flee. And I know that there were no no history of any donbas separatism up in up till
1: then as you said i mean uh, even in the online world let's say people are very attached to their narratives even if they're not you know connected by birth or by you know by family or anything to to the region and what do you think has been the long term russian goal in ukraine uh, since 2014 what are they trying to achieve with the various actions that they've taken
2: the war of 2014 i think that they were very being very opportunistic like they're trying to see what works so they try so they declare that this is in 2014 they call this russian spring and reinstatement of novorossia this southeast of ukraine that's what the, that was colonized after well by catherine the second they try to to liberate the Novorossia as a breakaway region, basically half you partition Ukraine, take half of Ukraine under their control.
1: Sorry to jump in that, but like with the goal of kind of making Ukraine into a protectorate, as the British Empire used to say, that kind of thing. So it would be nominally self-governing, but really part of Russia. Is that the goal?
2: No, no, my, my sense is that they would have, what they would have done would be the part, well, initially an independent, like a breakaway state. Like that's what they did to, to were trying to do to Luhansk and Donetsk people's republics. Like they, they wouldn't annexate them as they did to Crimea. They would have this unrecognized, like gray zone, like Transnistria or Abkhazia or South Ossetia in Georgia they took over over so this would have impeded ukrainian any ukrainian uh, alliances with the eu and nato and i think that that would have been their ultimate goal
1: so it is kind of about though having you know like in belarus for example has its own president but he very much under the seems to be under the orders of president of Russia. I mean, I, was that the kind of goal in Ukraine?
2: I mean, they. I think that, well, that's my hot take, that when, when they pressed Yanukovych to, well, I'm 100% sure that he refused to sign the EU Association Agreement, because of Russian, the Russian pressure. And I think that they realize that this is the moment when Ukraine will just go break away indefinitely from the Russian world. From this uh, closer relations with the EU, association with the EU, would, could, could be a step towards EU membership, potentially. So, and this would have meant that Russia wouldn't be able to have a friendly, like Belarus-like Ukraine their sphere of interest. And I'm definitely sure that it was not so much about their security or anything. It was about their control. And they've set up this as an alternative to the EU so-called customs union and they were really urging Ukraine to join it and Yanukovych would be kind of flickering and not agreeing to it but basically Ukrainians saw that if we are giving up on the EU we'll be dragged into this customs union and basically be a part of the Russian empire again this is what this was definitely not in the best interest of Ukraine as we can see now because basically it means that Russians will wipe out our identity as what they're doing now as we're speaking, like burning Ukrainian books, occupied Melitopol, bringing in Russian curriculums in, and books into occupied schools. And that's what they were doing in the Russian after they occupied Luhansk and Donetsk in 2014. So
1: and the president of Russia just before this war, you know, he wrote or had written for him perhaps a very lengthy essay. And then he had a long speech on TV where he enunciated his opinion that Ukraine was not actually a country and so on, and that was really a part of Russia. And people were in Ukraine were mistaken in their belief that it was that it was a country. So you know it it does appear that the the goal is very much to bring Ukraine back into Russian orbit, at least
2: Yeah, I mean, that's when I saw that article, like I felt that, yeah, the the war is imminent, like comprehensive war. You know what I mean? I mean, this whole narrative about Ukraine not being a nation, being just delusional little Russians. It's been present in, since cherished in uh, in Russian Empire since 19, since the 19th century. So it's nothing new. So it's just that now it's been proclaimed on the world, on the world. A wide scale and everybody can hear it but this is what has been russian narratives and official state ideology since russia embraced themselves as an empire.
1: I mean, you know, I, I, there's a great quote from Ernst Renan, who was a 19th century French philosopher and he said a nation is a plebiscite of everyday. So it's in other words it's about the desire of the people to live together whether, you know, whether or not they qualify in some sort of, you know, non-existence objective terms. But I mean, I think I hope we've shown today Nadia that Ukraine is, you know, a historical nation and has existed for a long time and has its own rich history so thank you very much
0: Nadia for for joining me today and and I hope you've enjoyed talking to us
2: I did thank you so much for having me
0: so that was John Dorney and Nadia Dobryanska discussing the parallels between Ukrainian history and Ireland so you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie and you can follow us on twitter at irishhistorypod or on facebook facebook facebook.com the irish history show So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.